different, uh, a different, whole different approach than what I have been doing. Um, up till now, we've been tracing the history of American Christianity from the beginnings of this nation to um, coming up to the present day. But today is Easter, and I wanted to celebrate Easter, the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the picture I have up here is uh, one of the sites where they believe the... Um, uh, the actual grave where Jesus was entombed. Um, there's some discrepancy among historians about where that grave actually was. You know, it's been 2,000 years, earthquakes, stuff moves around, but they believe that this is one of the sites. Today, <laughs> well, I am starting over. Today, we celebrate and commemorate the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead as Son of God and Son of Man. Glory to God. Amen. Amen. He is risen. Amen. We call this celebration Easter, one of the most important events on the church calendar. The church calendar helps us remember the whole life of Christ from his birth to his death, resurrection, ascension to heaven, and glorification and revelation as the one who is far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Ephesians 1.21. The Christian church calendar has its roots in the Jewish liturgical calendar as it existed during Jesus's earthly ministry. The year, the Jewish calendar year, begins with Pesach, Passover, observed on 14 Nisan, the first month of the Jewish year, with the sacrifice of a lamb, and continues on 15 Nisan with the Passover Seder. How many of you have heard of Passover, have heard of a Seder? Probably a lot. The Jewish month Nisan corresponds to our months ranging from March to April. Nisan is the beginning of the Jewish year according to Exodus 12 verses 1 and 2. The Pesach, or Passover, commemorates the deliverance of the Israelites from the land of Egypt where they were enslaved. The celebration of the Passover also calls to mind the earlier sacrifice of Abraham when God called him to sacrifice his son in Genesis 22. In the Genesis account, we remember that God gave Abraham a substitute to sacrifice for his son. In the book of Exodus, the Israelites are enslaved and oppressed in ancient Egypt. Yahweh, the eternal almighty I am, appears to Moses in a burning bush and commands Moses to confront Pharaoh. To show his power, Yahweh inflicts a series of 10 plagues on the Egyptians, culminating in the 10th plague, the death of each household's firstborn, beginning with Pharaoh down to the lowliest slave in the kingdom. No household would be spared, not even the Israelites, unless they followed God's commands. 
Before this final plague, Yahweh commands Moses to tell the Israelites to mark their doorposts and the top of the door, or the lintel, with a slain lamb's blood. Thus, Yahweh will pass over the Israelites so that they will not be touched by the death of the firstborn. This punishment seems severe, even considering the terrible law of Pharaoh who commanded the murder of every Hebrew boy. Uh, And you can read about that in Exodus chapter 1. But God's love for the Israelites is personal. In Exodus 4.22, God instructs Moses, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. So the line is drawn. Either God's firstborn son will go free, or Pharaoh's firstborn son and all of those sons of his people will die. Ultimately, God saves and protects his firstborn son, Israel, from even the angel of death. The biblical regulations for the observance of the Passover festival require that all leavening or yeast in each household be disposed of before the beginning of the 15th of Nisan. Leavening is the yeast that causes bread to rise and is symbolic of sin and corruption, which must be destroyed in every household as preparation for the Passover. An unblemished lamb or goat known as the Corban Pesach, or Paschal lamb, is to be set apart on 10th Nisan and slaughtered between noon and sunset on 14th Nisan. So the Israelites had to take their their choice lamb of the flock, the best one, the unblemished one, and separate that lamb on 10th Nisan in preparation for the slaughter that would take place. The literal meaning of the Hebrew uh, Passover is between the two evenings from 14 Nisan to 15 Nisan. Uh, Keep in mind, the Jews counted the the start of a day as actually occurring at sunset or right before sunset. The roasted lamb or goat is then to be eaten between noon and sunset on 15 Nisan without the removal of its internal organs with unleavened bread known as matzo and bitter herbs known as maror. Uh, And you can read about this in Exodus 12 verses 3 through 10. Nothing of the sacrifice on which the sun rises by the morning of the next day may be eaten, but must be burned. This observance is to remember that the Israelites had to eat the Passover meal in haste. So in the original account, they prepare the meal, they slaughter the lamb, they take the lamb's blood, put it on the doorposts and the lintel, the top of the door, And then they roast this lamb and they eat it and they have to eat all of it with bitter herbs, unleavened bread, and they eat in haste because God is going to bring them out of the land in Egypt. So this observance is to remember that the Israelites had to eat this meal in haste because God was about to deliver them. All of this was for preparation for the coming of the Lord. This is what the Lord says, about midnight I will go throughout Egypt. Every firstborn son in Egypt will die, from the firstborn son of Pharaoh who sits on the throne to the firstborn of the slave girl who is at her hand mill, and all the firstborn of the cattle as well 
There will be loud wailing throughout Egypt, worse than there has ever been or ever will be again. Exodus 11, 4 through 6. As we look back over the centuries, we see that all the Passover lambs that were ever slaughtered for the observance point to the one pure, unblemished Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. As the Lamb of God, his innocent blood covers those otherwise deserving of death, and at the same time he offers himself up as the firstborn son who was marked for death, as God came in judgment upon both his own people Israel and those outside of the covenant as well. But why is leaven mentioned in these passages, and why is getting rid of leaven an important part of the preparation for the feast? Leaven, or yeast, symbolizes sin. It is the fungus that corrupts and represents decay and ultimately ruin. And there's a lot of verses, um, Jesus used the, this concept of leaven as a corrupting agent in many passages in the Gospels, Mark 16.6, uh, rather Mar Matthew 16.6, Mark 8.15 are just two, um, and uh, it's referenced also in Acts 23.8 and in 1 Corinthians 5.7-8. We know that what the Lord is truly concerned with when he commands us to clean out all the leaven from our dwelling places is to examine our hearts and consciences for the corruption brought by sinful thoughts and actions. Preparation for the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread is, in addition to house cleaning, a time of spiritual preparation and repentance. During the Passover meal, uh, the Seder, the head of the household takes a large piece of matzah the unleavened bread, and breaks it into three sections, representing the Trinity. The middle piece of matzah, called an afikomen, is broken again, wrapped in a cloth, and hidden somewhere in the house. The word afikomen is derived from the Greek word afikomenos, which means the coming one, or he who has come. And then the children are to search for the afikomen throughout the house and the child who first finds it receives a special blessing. It was, it was this special piece of matzo that Jesus gave to his disciples at the Last Supper. The afikomen which Jesus took up had been broken, as his life was soon to be broken. It had been pierced as it was prepared, so that no leaven could form in the dough, just as his body would be pierced by the lance of a Roman soldier, wrapped in a cloth as his lifeless body would be wrapped in grave clothes, hidden away as his body was laid in a tomb in the earth. It was the afikomen that Jesus gave to his disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Matthew 26, 26. Also, during the Seder, four cups of wine are drunk. The first cup of wine is drunk at the beginning along with a blessing. The second cup of wine is drunk when the story of the Passover is told, 
And the four questions are asked by the children, beginning with, why is tonight different from all other nights? The third cup of wine is drunk at the conclusion of the meal, along with another blessing. The fourth cup of wine is drunk after reciting the Hallel, which is Psalms 115 through 118. The four cups represent the four expressions of deliverance promised by God in Exodus 6, 6 through 7. I will bring out, I will deliver, I will redeem, and I will take. What is the importance of wine at the meal? Wine is for nobility, not for slaves. Wine is not something that can be produced quickly. It takes years to produce fine wine. Indicative of the first and second cup, the Lord of the Sabbath, Matthew 12, 8, invites people to find redemption rest, Matthew eleven twenty eight, as well as Canaan rest in him, Matthew eleven twenty nine through 30. In other words, at the first Passover, they didn't drink wine. There's no mention of wine. They were slaves. They were eating the meal in haste because they were soon to be delivered. You can't produce, you know, unless you're laboring in the master's vineyard and you're a slave, you can't produce wine. The Israelites in Egypt had no wine. They would have wine in Canaan. When God brought them into the land of promise, they would be able to plant the vineyards and produce the wine of the Sabbath rest in the promised land. So Sabbath rest in the land enables God's people to produce the wine of celebration. The third cup represents Christ's resurrection on the third day, signifying spiritual redemption. Matthew 26, 27 through 28. So we can see how this Passover meal, as us, as Christians, as we look at it, we see a greater fulfillment than what the Jews saw. Now, the fourth cup is for the future. Today, Jews who celebrate with four cups of wine at the Seder also commemorate the Egyptian exile, the Babylonian exile, the Greek exile, which extends from the time of Alexander the Great throughout the Roman Empire and its occupation of Israel, and then the current exile, which is the dispersion of Jews throughout the world that we have seen in more modern times. And, of course, they look forward to the coming of the Messiah. We look at the Seder, we see it as a fulfilled meal because the Messiah has come. The coming one, the Afikomen, will drink the fourth cup of praise with you in my Father's kingdom. Matthew 26, 29. Now, also, throughout the Hebrew scriptures, the cup is often used as a symbol of God's judgment. So it has a positive aspect, and, and looking at it in a natural perspective, a negative aspect. For example, through the Old Testament, it talks about the cup of fury, the cup of judgment, the cup of trembling, the cup of horror and desolation. There are many places in the Old Testament uh, where it, you know, it uses the imagery of a cup containing judgment. Yet we also find the psalmist crying out, I will take up the cup of salvation 
and call upon the name of the Lord. Psalm 116.13, which is part of the Hallel. The symbol of the cup carries with it pictures of both wrath and redemption, of judgment and blessing. The Exodus account does not mention drinking wine, as we have said, during the Passover meal, because they were eating in haste and they had no wine. But God poured out the cup of his wrath on the Egyptians and spared the Israelites who obeyed him by placing the blood of a lamb on the doorposts and the lintel of their homes. Now, the third cup, as Jesus comes to the Last Supper with his disciples, he takes it up and he said, This is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. Luke 22, 20. The Apostle Paul calls it the cup of blessing which we bless, as well as the cup of the Lord. 1 Corinthians 10, 16, and 21. Jesus was celebrating the Passover with his disciples in the promised land. Although they were oppressed by the Romans, they were indeed in the land of promise. And this was where God had said he would bless the fruit of your ground, your grain, and your new wine and your oil, Deuteronomy 7.13. But the fourth cup is for when he would drink it new with you, in other words, speaking to his disciples, in my Father's kingdom, Matthew 26.29. Now, many times in the Passover celebration, and this continues to this day, there's a fifth cup, and it is set at a place which has a plate, uh, dining utensils, and it's all prepared as if someone is going to sit there, but no one sits there. Because this is for the cup of Elijah, kos Eliyahu in Hebrew. The cup is filled with wine, and children eagerly open a door so that Elijah can come in and join the Seder. The Jews believe that Elijah will come again. He did not die a normal human death. He was simply taken up by the Lord. He was translated. And they know he will come again, as it says in Malachi 4, 5, and 6. And so here you see pictured, um, obviously this is, you know, in modern times today, this is a Passover plate representing the bitter herbs and the things that the, the Israelites would have eaten in haste. There's a bone which represents the bones of the sacrificial lamb. Um, and there is in the center of the, the plate, the afikomen, three pieces of matzah wrapped in a cloth and a cup filled with wine. Jesus celebrated the Passover with his disciples in the promised land where God would bless the fruit of your ground, your grain, and your new wine and your oil, Deuteronomy 7.13. But the fourth cup, again, is when he would drink it new with you, his disciples, and because we follow in those footsteps of those disciples. This is for us, too that we will drink it new with him in the kingdom of God, Matthew 26, 29. So this is what we celebrate in the Lord's Supper, 
that we drink this cup in the Father's kingdom. Now, the next feast, um, and Jesus fulfilled every, every aspect of what we see in the first feast, the Passover. The next feast that Jesus' uh, death, burial, resurrection, glorification, or rather ascension glorification, uh, fulfilled is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The, the next feast on the Jewish calendar is Chag HaMatzot, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is celebrated right after Passover from 15 to 21 Nisan, and that occurs between March and April, and the dates vary depending on the cycles of the moon. Um, the Jewish calendar is a lunar calendar. They based their festival dates on the lunar calendar. So this feast starts at the conclusion of Passover. The Feast of Unleavened Bread is outlined in Leviticus 23, 6 through 8. Then on the 15th day of the same month, there is the Feast of Unleavened Bread to the Lord. For seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall have a holy convocation. You shall not do any laborious work. But for seven days you shall present an offering by fire to the Lord. On the seventh day is a holy convocation. You shall not do any laborious work. So during this feast, they are to eat unleavened bread and no work. It's essentially a Sabbath feast. The Feast of Unleavened Bread points to the Messiah's sinless life, as leaven is a picture of sin in the Bible, making him the perfect sacrifice for our sins. Jesus' body was in the grave during the first days of this feast, like a kernel of wheat planted and waiting to burst forth as the bread of life. And we remember how Jesus fed the multitudes with bread in the wilderness in John 6, and they should have remembered how God fed their forefathers in the wilderness, Exodus 16, with manna from heaven. The Israelites did not know what this food was. That's why they called it manna. But Jesus tells us what it is. So from uh, the sixth chapter of John, so they said to him, what then? Are you doing as a sign so that we may see and believe you? What work are you performing? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread out of heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it is my father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said to him, Lord, always give us this bread. John 6, 30 through 34. Continuing on. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. The one who comes to me will not be hungry. And the one who believes in me will never be thirsty. But I said to you that you have indeed seen me, and yet 
you do not believe. Everything that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I certainly will not cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that of everything that he has given me, I will lose nothing, but will raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. John six thirty-five through 40. Uh, following the Feast of Unleavened Bread, again in the Jewish calendar, we come to the Feast of First Fruits. The Feast of First Fruits was connected with the harvest, where a sheaf of barley would be waved before Yahweh on the first morning after the Sabbath. Keep that in mind, the first morning after the Sabbath. Instituted in Leviticus 23, 9 through 14, God instructed Israel to bring in the sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest. He shall wave the sheaf before the Lord. Now, on the day when you wave the sheaf, you shall offer a male lamb, one year old, without defect, as a burnt offering to the Lord. Its grain offering shall then be two-tenths of an ephah of fine flour mixed with oil, an offering by fire to the Lord for a soothing aroma with its drink offering, a fourth of a hin of wine. Until this very day, until you have brought in the offering of your God, you shall eat neither bread nor roasted grain nor new produce. It is to be a permanent statute throughout your generations, in all your dwelling places. So these festivals are coinciding with the ripening of the barley crop, and then the Israelites would harvest that crop, and they would bring the prescribed offerings to the Lord uh, in the temple. This is in, again, in Leviticus 23. The, and again, the Feast of First Fruits is observed on the first day of the week, the day after the Sabbath. Again, we think about our church calendar. We celebrate Easter on the Sunday. So in fact, the Feast of First Fruits coincides with the resurrection of Christ on Sunday. Now again, you have to keep in mind the Jewish day begins at sundown. So Sabbath begins at sundown Friday and ends at sundown Saturday. For the Jews, the first day of the week begins on Saturday night. Sabbath has ended. The first day of the week is begin. I know this is hard for us to wrap our minds around because we think of going from morning to morning. Um, so uh, we think of it as starting with sunup on Sunday morning. And indeed, we know from the scriptures, we know from incontrovertible fact that Jesus, you know, we don't know exactly what time he actually was resurrected, but we know that the disciples discovered this early in the morning, 
And it wasn't, you know, it wasn't the male disciples, it was the women who came first, bringing spices to preserve the body. They were concerned about, you know, following the Jewish burial customs, and they were ready to preserve the body. And they were thinking that they would enter this tomb where Jesus's body had been placed early on Sunday morning. They couldn't have done this work on the Sabbath. Um, this, the Jewish law prohibited doing any type of work on the Sabbath. You can't even walk very far on the Sabbath. They, they certainly could not have gone from their homes to the tomb to prepare, you know, to put the spices on the body that were required um, in their, according to their customs. So again, here we see clearly how this feast, this Jewish feast foreshadows the resurrection of Christ. And so the Apostle Paul refers to Jesus Christ in 1 Corinthians 15, 20 as the first fruits from the dead. Now, the Israelites were not allowed to eat any of the crop until the day the first portion was brought before the priest. The first fruits belonged to God, and the people of Israel acknowledged God as the source of their crops and their provision overall. The part represents the whole. They can't bring the whole harvest to God, even though technically they should, but they bring him the first fruits, acknowledging that all of it belongs to him. So Jesus, after shedding his blood on the cross and offering his sinless body as a sacrifice, fulfills the feast of first fruits by his resurrection. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. Colossians 1, 18. Just as the first portion of the harvest in the Old Testament anticipated the full harvest still to come, Jesus' resurrection anticipates the full resurrection to come for all of those who are in Christ. His resurrection signals the very beginning of a brand new creation promised in the Old Testament. Isaiah 43, 18-19 and Isaiah 65, 17. Similarly, in Romans 8, 23, Paul says that the indwelling of the Holy Spirit within believers is the firstfruits of the redemption God will bring to his creation. For the ancient Israelites, the Feast of Firstfruits during Passover was an opportunity to show thanksgiving to God for all the ways he had provided for them. For believers today, it is a foreshadowing and a reminder of what Christ has done in redeeming creation and how believers will also experience the resurrection. Now, another feast that Jesus fulfills is the Feast of Weeks or Pentecost. So in Hebrew, Shavuot, weeks, is the Feast of Weeks and starts on the 50th day counted from Passover um, it's held normally uh, from 6 to 7 Sivan. The Jewish month Sivan corresponds to our months of May and June. The word Shavuot also means seven, as the festival occurs seven weeks before Passover. 
or rather as after Passover. The feast came to be known as Pentecost by Hellenized Jews from the Greek word for 50. Since the Feast of Weeks was one of the harvest feasts, the Jews were commanded to present an offering of new grain to the Lord, Leviticus 23:16. Shavuot celebrated the wheat harvest. So they've harvested their barley and they brought that as a wave offering before the Lord. Now they are harvesting the wheat. And this is a somewhat different festival in, in terms of what they're actually going to offer. The offer was to be two wave loaves. And either, these are, when they say wave, they're just saying the priest is going to lift up the loaf of bread and, and hold it in the temple above you know, the altar. So he's waving it in front of the Lord. Two wave loaves of two-tenths of an ephah, which were made of fine flour, baked with leaven. So this is a very, again, a very different uh, type of feast. It's going to be leavened bread that the priest will wave before the Lord. The offerings were to be made of the first fruits of that harvest. Leviticus 23, 17. So they're going to take some of the wheat that has been grown and harvested, use it to bake this bread. It's going to be leavened. In other words, it's going to rise. And the priest is going to wave those two loaves uh, that they make before the Lord. Now, along with the wave offerings, they're also going to offer seven first-year lambs that were without blemish, along with one young bull and two rams. Additional offerings are also prescribed in Leviticus and other passages in the Old Testament that outline how this feast was to be observed. Another important requirement of this feast is that when the Jews harvested their fields, they were required to leave the corners of the field untouched and not gather any gleanings from the harvest as a way of providing for the poor and strangers. And this is prescribed in Leviticus 23:22. Now, the Jews also celebrated the giving of the Torah at Mount Sinai during the Feast of Weeks. Several aspects of the Shavuot temple sacrifice suggest a connection to the Exodus and the giving of the Torah. The Shavuot temple sacrifice is the only holiday sacrifice which includes a communal peace offering. So they are also celebrating the giving of the Lord. They're celebrating the wheat harvest, giving thanks to God for, for the bounty, the, the food that he has given them. And um, because God has given them his law, made his covenant with them, they uh, offer a peace offering as part of the, the ceremony. Um, and th what this says is that we, the people of God and God, are no more cut off from each other. Uh, we have, our fellowship has been restored and there is peace between us. The Shavuot peace offering recalls the communal peace offering, which was offered after the acceptance of the Torah, uh, which is outlined in Exodus 24, 5 through 11. Also, the peace offering is one of the few sacrifices to include 
uh, in Hebrew, kametz, which is leavened dough or bread. Today, of course, many Jews do not farm or do agricultural work, and the temple no longer exists in which they can make animal sacrifices. So over centuries, a tradition arose in which faithful Jews celebrate Shavuot by staying up all night studying Torah. Like other Jewish feasts, the Feast of Weeks is important in that it foreshadows the coming Messiah and his ministry. Jesus was crucified as the Passover lamb and rose from the grave at the Feast of First Fruits. Following his resurrection, Jesus spent the next 40 days teaching his disciples before ascending to heaven, Acts 1. 50 days after his resurrection and after ascending to heaven to sit at the right hand of God the Father, Jesus sent the Holy Spirit as promised uh, John 14, 16 through 17, to indwell the disciples and empower them for ministry. The promised Holy Spirit arrived on the day of Pentecost, which again is another name for the Feast of Weeks. On the day of Pentecost, or the Feast of Weeks, the first fruits of the church were gathered by Christ as some 3,000 people heard Peter present the gospel after the Holy Spirit had empowered and indwelt the disciples as promised. With the promised indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the first fruits of God's spiritual harvest under the new covenant began. Today, that harvest continues as people continue to be saved, but there is also another coming harvest whereby God will again turn his attention back to Israel so that all of Israel will be saved. So that remnant of Israel that God has uh, foreordained and predestined to be elected will indeed be saved. And you can read about this in Romans eleven twenty six. The initial 3,000 people who heard the apostle Peter preach were devout men from every nation under heaven, Acts 2, 5. So now this, this feast, the fulfillment of this feast is being poured out on not just Israel, but the nations. The nations have come to Jerusalem and from Jerusalem, the gospel will go forth and continue to harvest out of the nations uh, the righteous crop that God has ordained to be saved. The leavened bread offered at the Feast of Weeks further symbolizes the removal of the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile, a mixture now acceptable to God. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the hostility, which is the law composed of commandments expressed in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two one new person, in this way establishing peace, and that he might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, by it having put to death the hostility. Ephesians 2, 14 through 16. Is the cup of blessing which we bless 
not a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is the bread which we break not a sharing in the body of Christ? Since there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one loaf. 1 Corinthians 10, 16 through 17. So this concludes uh, what I have prepared to show how Jesus fulfilled these three feasts, uh, the Feast of Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the Feast of First Fruits. Um, any questions or comments?